Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm talking with uh, Ricardo Salvador. He's senior scientist and director of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And he was in Logan recently uh, to give a talk uh, for the uh, uh, Department of Plant, Soils, and uh, Climate as a part of the uh, 25 Years of SARE. That's a uh, uh, sustainable agriculture research and uh, education. Dr. Salvador works with citizens, scientists, and economists and politicians to transition our current food system into one that grows healthy foods while employing sustainable practices. And Ricardo Salvador says that uh, preventable diseases like hypertension and diabetes result from a default food system that exists only because it's successful as a business proposition for some large agribusiness firms. And by changing this, he says we can improve public health. Ricardo Salvador, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So before you uh, went over to the Union of Concerned Scientists, I believe you uh, worked at Iowa State University and you were at uh, Kellogg. Foundation? That is correct, the Kellogg Foundation, as opposed to the Kellogg Cereal Company. Right, right. Um, and uh, maybe a good starting place would be uh, your, your background. You have a very interesting uh, background with your parents. Your mother is, uh, what is she, a German-Irish or something, and, and your mother is, uh, and your father is Zapotec Indian. Uh, correct, yeah. My mom's a German-American woman who has a very uh, typical uh, American background in the sense that her family immigrated to California uh, during the 30s from Arkansas, so she's an Archie, and uh, uh, grew up in California, went to Mexico as a missionary, where she met my father, who, as you mentioned, is a Native American man from the state of Oaxaca, and so uh, had me and my siblings. We were all raised until our our, uh, teenage years in Mexico before coming to the United States. Uh, In Oaxaca? Uh, in various parts of southern Mexico, my okay. my dad was uh, a um, until his retirement a school teacher and had assignments in different parts of Mexico, and uh, all in the south. So Mexico City, mm. Puebla, Oaxaca, uh, uh, different parts in the southern part of the country. And I'm reading your bio; very interesting. You you became conscious at uh, at some point that on your mother's side, some of the relatives were very successful farmers in the California Central Coast. On your father's side, very poor, very very bright people, but very poor, and and in some respects, your mother's people could very well have employed your father's people. Exactly, yeah. Uh, the specific example that you're referring to is that one branch of the family um, uh, was and is very successful in dairy farming in the central coast of California. And it is true that on my father's side of the family, they went on the migrant trail, you know, for a variety of reasons, into California. And they did the sort of menial labor uh, that is employed on farms as well as service labor, uh, you know, the back end of the hospitality industry and restaurants, hotels, and so on. So, yeah, that's a quite plausible scenario, which means, you know, that if you grow in a family where you have both of those experiences, you uh, see them both, you can contrast them both, you reflect and ask why do people with similar ambitions, similar capabilities find that they have different opportunities in life and it drives you to think about uh, food justice, uh, agricultural justice and concepts like this. Uh, so the, the, the problems or the, or the barriers are systemic then, That's it. I guess it's a very, very clear illustration of, uh, of that fact. Exactly, yeah. The problems are systemic, structural. You know, you, it happens to do with uh, where you are born, uh, sometimes with who you are, you know, what trajectory is at least immediately available to you and what, what options are actually real for you. I wonder if we could get into this, this, uh, this idea, and I mentioned this, uh, quoted you earlier, this idea that... Um, what, I guess this is uh, the clearest, this is kind of the, the pithiest uh, version of this on the Union of Concerned Scientists site, that the government tells us to eat what we tell you to, not what we uh, support with our subsidies. There's kind of a disconnect Correct. there. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it, it's one of several instances, but I think th- this one is a very pointed one of how, uh, at least in the case of uh, the United States Department of Agriculture, there is a conflict of interest in terms of the variety of responsibilities that it has been set up to fulfill. Uh, But as far as our work at the Union of Concerned Scientists is concerned, we 
actually see that there's an opportunity here for the public to become engaged and activated around an issue that would solve so many uh, related issues if we would take it head on. And it is the quality of the payback that we're getting for investment as a citizen, citizenry, uh, you know, as the public sector, uh, for the investment that we're making in government programs. And here we have a clear instance of government programs, uh, and I'm referring to agricultural programs, that subsidize and incentivize the production of too much of the wrong stuff uh, while they're advocating that we eat more of stuff that we don't produce enough of internally uh, and where we actually create policy barriers for adequate domestic production, and that's fruits and vegetables. So, uh, Union of Concerned Scientists, are you... Are you Serious about taking on industrial agriculture to getting rid of the subsidies? What what are what are what do you want done? Well, I, that's a very interesting way of, of putting the question. What what is true is that at the Union of Concerned Scientists, we're all about dealing with the questions of our time, uh, and in our language, uh, it has to do with the long term human prospect. So, uh, I, you know, you ask whether we are willing to take on industrial agriculture. I, I think. Anybody working on reforming the food system would very much wish for this to be a dialogue where it's about what is best for us rather than an us against them. But I do take your point that there is an entrenched uh, business interest, there's an entrenched infrastructure uh, in the food system. You know, it's a $1.3 trillion global enterprise. Uh, and if we are not uh, careful and sophisticated, um, we could very easily uh, fall into the trap of um, not dialoguing or discussing our issues in a way where it's clear that this is a common interest, not only of corporations that want to be successful business-wise for the long term, but as society as a whole, which invests in the government programs and policies that make these corporations viable to begin with. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would much prefer for this to be a constructive dialogue where common interests drive the agenda. But, uh, you know, we live in the real world, and you're quite right that every once in a while our interests do run head-on into each other. And this is particularly the case in agricultural and food system legislation. And so with that contextual piece, the answer is yes. If it takes that direct sort of confrontation, we believe we have the goods and that they are all about what is best for the public and that as a democracy, um, that what is best for the citizenry as a whole ought to drive the best policy decisions that we can come up with. And we're about doing the policy analysis that identifies those policy options, recommends them, and advocates for them. And I suppose, uh, you know, if you just look at this, uh, the, the economic drivers, uh, there's an increase in interest in sustainable agriculture and in community-supported agriculture and in, you know, farm-to-table and all of these movements. Um, you know, if, if agricultural producers are smart, they're paying attention to that. Uh, I, I agree. And, and uh, clearly, successful business persons are smart. Um, I think there, there's a need for us to understand that when we talk about sustainability, the literal meaning of that word is something that we all need to agree about. Uh, it has to do with engaging in any activity that we're considering for the long term. So that for the business community, this means that if you want your business, your brand, to be something that survives for the long term, you sometimes have to be thinking farther than the traditional uh, window of you know a quarter or even a year, in some cases even a decade. And the best examples of this come from the technology world where revolutions can occur in a span of just a few months and years that determine what the major brands are and who the survivors are. And uh, the revolutions haven't come that quickly in the food world, but they are quick enough. Um, so an example of that is that we live at a time when folks that are about 75 years of age remember a time in the United States where it really wasn't the case that there was enough food for everyone. You know, you go back to periods such as the 1930s Depression, what drove, you know, my mother's family to migrate from one part of the country 
to the other had to do with the fact that there was tremendous uh, uh, economic pressure, that there was failure in crops, uh, and that government programs had to be set up in order to deal with either natural disasters or market failures. And a response to that was the creation of what we now refer to as the industrial food system. And one outcome of that is that we supported the agricultural sector, indirectly supported an agribusiness sector that has now become global. In a way, we have a system that has been very successful in answering the problems of the 1930s, but isn't agile enough to answer the problems of the, you know, the aughts and the 2010s and the future, uh, because we've created these entrenched, successful business interests. So this is all about thinking about the future and what will best serve the public interest over the long term. And I, I think we should all have a common interest in that. Mm-hmm. Oh, of course, one of the one of the factors, at least um, one of the advantages that has been touted in, in favor of industrial agriculture and monoculture is that if we ramp up production, we'll be able to feed feed the world, uh, you know, increasing population. What are some of the arguments on the other side, then? What are some of the weaknesses of the, the monoculture, industrial agriculture? Yeah, well, that, this is a, a complex question, and uh, probably the, the the simplest thing that, that we can say is that the the industrial system, by which we mean, you know, the very large-scale, uh, uh, high-capital input uh, system, is by definition a system that serves the wealthy. Now, I I need to be very clear about that statement. It's just a descriptive statement. Uh, What I mean by that is that if you're going to have access to the scale of land and inputs that are required for that mode of agriculture, you need access to capital. And that means that you need to make a return on that investment, which right away means that only those who can afford the output of that system will be able to participate in that system. So it is the food system of the wealthy. So it goes without saying that the hungry of the world are the poor of the world. By definition, they are unable to participate in that system. Now, there's more that we can say about that, but if uh, the motivation of uh, advocates of large-scale intensive agriculture is that they believe that this is their contribution to dealing with human suffering due to poverty and due to hunger, then the system is actually more complicated than that. And so that leads to two conclusions. One is we, first of all, have to recognize and agree with the good intent. You know, if the intent is really to deal with hunger and poverty, we're all behind that. We don't disagree with that. But the global agricultural system, which is actually a competition for the resources, land, water, minerals, energy, that go into formulating the foodstuffs that we can afford in the rich world, does not address the issues of the poor by definition. They might as well be on two different planets. So we can't realistically claim that high input, high capital costs, and therefore the expensive food system is going to address the issues of the poor. That is the the basic fact of the equation. What uh, what are those barriers then? What uh, how would the system have to change to 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 get that to flow out to the poor? Uh, well, uh, basic economics. Uh, I think. Uh, uh, those uh, of uh, of our listeners at the moment that are familiar with the work of Francis Moore LePay and Joseph Collins of a few decades ago, uh, as captured in one of their books, which is called uh, Twelve Myths of World Hunger, uh, uh, will either remember the following example, and for those who aren't, I'll, I'll introduce it with full credit to them, because I think it is very simple, very accessible, easy to understand, and captures so much. So... Um, Uh, They talk in one of the chapters of the book, one of the myths, around the uh, common argument uh, or parable that you often hear about how you deal with hunger, and it is this refrain around whether it is better to uh, feed a poor person or to teach a poor person, you know, how to produce their food, and it's through this parable of the fish, you know, so do you give a person a fish or do you teach them to fish? And, And they point out that this is misdirection. The basic economics of the situation with food is not whether you give someone a fish or teach them to fish or whether they know how to fish. It's who owns the damn pond. And so in the example that I gave earlier, large-scale agriculture requires a complex set of inputs and assets, uh, which in the modern world we access through capital. 
And so basically the answer to how you deal with hunger and poverty is to make sure that those that are currently poor and therefore hungry, because that's how it works in a world where food redounds to those that have the capital resources to produce it, um, is to make sure that people either have the land, um, the resources that are required to produce for themselves, or that they have the economic well-being, you know, the purchasing power, that they can participate in the industrial food system. Uh, because in the reality of the current world, when you find the hungry, you find the poor. When you find the poor, you find people that either can't produce food for themselves or don't earn sufficiently to be able to purchase food. So if you really want to deal with that, uh, you know, producing more food that they can't afford is not the way to, to deal with it. The way to deal with it is to say, what do you need in order to be able to produce your own food? And uh, we're talking about the dispossessed here. We're talking about people that don't have access to land. And uh, usually this is not an accident. You and I, in our uh, desire to have a banana uh, that we might eat or not, you know, it's a choice uh, with our breakfast in the morning, can easily outcompete uh, vast swaths of humanity in the tropics who formerly might have owned small parcels of land for self-provisioning, but we outcompete them for that land for what is essentially a luxury crop to us in the United States, meaning, you know, we're not going to live or die depending on our access to bananas but because in the industrial system, the most efficient way to produce them is to have large scales of consolidated land in the tropics, and we can pay for them. We can outbid for that. You know, perversely, even though unintentionally, perversely, we can be responsible for dispossessing people of the resources that they need in order to feed themselves. And when we do that, we create hungry people. So we would think about this, you know, and, and actually make sure that we have a fair system where everybody has the opportunity to feed themselves, not to create this dependency situation where a small sliver of the world believes and comforts itself in saying that their job is to feed the world. We need to make sure that justice uh, exists throughout the world so that people can feed themselves. That's really the only way that the hunger issue will permanently be addressed. So then the, the solutions, as you're pointing out, have to be worldwide? Correct. Uh, so how do you, I guess, the what, what, what's the venue there? You start with your own country and, and go outwards? What do, you, what do you think globally, act locally? What, uh, what's, the, uh, what's the mindset? Well, you know, you mentioned a few words earlier on uh, when you uh, described very accurately that there has been an acceleration in interest in various alternative modes of, of agriculture referred to variously as either uh, direct sales or, uh, you know, local food systems, regional food systems. Uh, sometimes they're known as farm-to-table. Sometimes we refer to urban agriculture. Um, and I'll, I'll point back to these, but reframe what they actually are. Um, you know, if you accept the scenarios I've just described it, then a way of understanding what all of these alternative modes represent is that they are about ownership of the factors of production. So um, what, what this means is that when you set up a food co-op, for instance, you have co-ownership of people that are producing and buying, meaning that they share in the decisions about how things are going to be produced, um, you know, the, the attributes of production, what is going to be grown, where it's going to be grown, these sorts of decisions. Um, uh, agreements between producers and buyers in that sense are probably the best way of making sure that you've got the right kind of monitoring of what everyone wants to have in their food system. And so then the issue is, you know, what scale is appropriate for all of us to be able to exert that sort of influence and, and to have that kind of knowledge about our food system. Uh, systems that uh, in the United States and Europe are known as community-supported agriculture are designed to do that, uh, you know, but they're not often understood as being about co-ownership or co-responsibility or providing access to factors of production. You know, they often are interpreted as essentially the toys of, you know, either an elite foodie culture uh, or, or else just cute agricultural models, not of the scale required to, quote, feed the world. But when that happens, what we're missing is the point that when you don't have access to that industrial food system for the reasons that I've described earlier, uh, if you are poor, you have to do what you can with what you've got. You know, it's a common uh, cliché. And that means that if what you have access to is a small uh, garden plot, if what you have access is a small lot in the city, 
then that's what you must work with. Um, it's as irrelevant to them to say, you know, that's inefficient, uh, uh, you know, that you're not going to feed the world that way as it would have been to go to a farmer in the 1920s in the United States and say something like, well, don't you know that, you know, you could have a combine, a machine that actually consolidates all of these uh, arduous manual pieces of labor that you're doing because it didn't exist at that time. Uh, you know, it, it was not accessible to them because it hadn't been created. Well, in the analog that I'm describing here, these machines do exist, but they might as well not exist because they're not accessible. Neither the land, nor the machinery, nor the capital, nor the inputs that are required uh, are accessible to the poor. But what is accessible to the poor is their entrepreneurship, uh, their ingenuity, their own labor, and if they can apply that on a half acre of land in order to provide for their own needs, then that's what matters. So we need to make sure that that is accessible to the poor and that then, uh, from then, they can begin to build upon successes, you know, build their own uh, assets, uh, you know, first of all, be healthy because they're providing food for themselves and their families, but then begin to build assets, begin to build economic well-being, can then begin to participate in the economic reality that those of us in the wealthy world just take for granted that everyone must have. So it's a, it's a, it's an A before B sort of sequential approach, and that will be different depending on what country, what region of the country you're in, what the economic realities are in. It's very important not to disparage or minimize what look to be, uh, you know, cute, uh, uh, you know, inconsequential, inefficient uh, systems of agriculture, because those are actually the most relevant and accessible to the very people we claim that we want to support with the very expensive industrial approach. We're talking with uh, Dr. Ricardo Salvador on the program today. You're listening to Access U-Time Time Williams. He's the senior scientist and director of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. He works with citizens, scientists, econo- uh, economists, and politicians to transition our current food system into one that grows healthy foods while employing sustainable practices. And he says that preventable diseases like hypertension and diabetes result from a default food system programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread, located at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries, with local seasonal fruits and lunch sandwiches. We're back with Dr. Ricardo Salvador, Senior Scientist and Director of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And uh, he is—he uh, was at uh, Utah State University recently giving a talk called Democracy Interrupted, Constructing a Food Utopia on the Top of Crumbling Foundations. And he was uh, sponsored by the uh, USU Plant Soils and Climate Department and uh, Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education. Uh, Dr. Salvador is uh, talking to us uh, from Washington, D.C., uh, the offices, I assume, of the Union of Concerned Scientists. Um, so, Dr. Salvador, I want to maybe get into this connection with our health. You're saying that preventable diseases like hypertension and diabetes, uh, these can be counteracted in a better way by changing the model. Our default food system exists to uh, to support this industrial agriculture model. Um how how would uh, changing the model improve our health? Well, we live uh, at a time when we have the largest epidemic of human-created disease that we've ever known. And uh, that may not seem obvious to everyone, but the moment that I mention what it actually is made up of, everyone will recognize it because we're all touched by it. And this is the epidemic of diet-related chronic metabolic diseases. You know, they start out when we become overweight, these days at a very young age, and become obese. And these days, two-thirds of us in the United States are in one or uh, or the other of those categories. Um, And then we will develop metabolic disease, uh, diabetes. And again, these days, this happens when we're children become uh, hypertense. Uh, Some of us will develop cancers of the lower gut related to our diet. And what will kill the majority of us are diet-related cardiovascular diseases, uh, heart attacks, strokes, and so on, a family of diseases that are all preventable. 
they have to do with the way in which we eat. And they have to do with the fact that we eat in a particular way given the apparent choices that we have. And the reason why I phrase it that way is that, you know, it seems like we have choice in terms of how we eat, but there really isn't that much option. And uh, there's a, a number of reasons for this. But the direct answer to your question is that the default system is to eat three times a day when we get hungry uh, and then to offer uh, to eat what the food system offers for us. And what it offers is, in essence, what gives the industry, as in any other business, the greatest return patronage, what we respond to the most, salt, sugar, and fat. And so here we have an industry that basically makes its profit by selling us as much as it can of stuff that's bad for us. And uh, when you think about this a little bit, if the market had produced this outcome on its own, there would be very little that any of us uh, would be able to say about that. But in fact, this system didn't emerge on its own. Uh, this system is a human creation. We invested in a particular model of the system. And the model dates back to the time when we, uh, as a nation, began to invest in supporting, for all the right reasons, the livelihood of farmers in the Midwestern part of the country who then began to produce more successfully than formerly um, you know, vast amounts of grain, uh, fattened cattle, fattened pork, and then the model was that this was uh, processed in a few centers in the Midwest and then railroaded out to the East Coast cities, and now that has expanded so that the uh, export was first to both coasts and now globally. So. Um, we invested in this system, which, as I mentioned earlier, now overproduces. Uh, really, the major problems that we have around agriculture these days don't have to do with insufficient production. They have to do with the fact that we overproduce. And that because we've invested in this infrastructure for production, um, and that means that we must find a way to utilize that overproduction, not that we would do what any other business does when it finds that it saturates the market, which is to, you know, uh, rethink its productive capacity or find new sectors uh, into which it will go. Uh, with agriculture, what we have in turn done is to find different ways in which we can use, say, surplus corn. And so, you know, pharmaceuticals, uh, sweeteners, plastics, these days biofuels, you know, each in turn have served that purpose. Such things as creating the um, uh, school food program, for instance, have to do with dealing with overproduction. So um, we've invested in the system that overproduces. It has serious environmental impacts. We pay either at the local level or at the federal level to clean up a lot of the environmental impact, or else we don't and just externalize that cost to others. And so fisher folk in the Gulf are paying for some of the environmental impact generated both by cities and by agriculture in the Midwest and the drainage basin of the Midwest. Um, so we pay twice there. We pay directly for subsidies into the system and prop it up. Uh, we generate some of the market for that system. That's certainly the case for biofuels. That's entirely a subsidized enterprise all around, from production to consumption and creating the infrastructure for that. Uh, we pay again for the environmental cost, uh, not the full cost, but we uh, subsidize some of the cleanup operations. And then because we produce too much of the wrong stuff, we eat too much of the wrong stuff. So then it produces the results that I've described already. And then we pay again. We pay to deal with these very expensive diseases because we have learned how to maintain them for a very long period of time, for many of us, 30, 40 years of our life. So folks that participate in programs such as Medicaid, you know, after they retire, uh, uh, or, uh, you know, uh, have access to other forms of insurance that are subsidized by the public, uh, these folks are essentially uh, receiving public support for the maintenance of these diseases. Now, I want to make sure that we understand that this follows on a very successful period where we learned how to produce at scale and we learned to eliminate human drudgery. There have been some real victories in agriculture, but here we have a situation where we produce too much of the wrong stuff, not enough of the right stuff, and it's a human creation. So we know how to do better, and because we're doing this with public resources and because it is human design, that's what I mean uh, by those statements that you read. We can redesign this system, and both the public and the private sector need to serve the greater common interest. That's what should drive the design of both public policies as well as for-profit initiatives within the corporate sector.
We're talking with Ricardo Salvador. He is the senior scientist and director of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And he came to Utah State University recently uh, to give a uh, talk for the uh, Plant, Soils, and Climate Department at uh, USU and for Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education. Uh, called Talks called Democracy Interrupted, Constructing a Food Utopia on Top of Crumbling Foundations. Uh, I wonder if there are some success stories. There, are there some illustrations of uh, of how perhaps we have changed the model, either in the United States or elsewhere? Sure. Well, uh, we we can talk about those on two different counts. And so, one is what we've learned in terms of research, and then the other is in terms of what is actually being uh, practiced. And so. In, in terms of agricultural knowledge, you know, one of the ways in which uh, the United States has made investments that have benefited not only this country but uh, many countries around the world uh, is through the investment in the land-grant uh, college and now university system uh, that dates back to the time of Lincoln, you know, somebody who farmed a great deal when he was young and who um, addressed some of the issues with the way that agriculture was, as he experienced it, through the establishment of the United States Department of Agriculture, the land-grant system, you know, he signed the Homestead Act, he had a great deal to do with creating the foundations for the system that we now have. And so there has been a great amount of public investment in generating the agricultural knowledge that we are now applying, both, as I said, here in the United States and, and abroad. And uh, so th- there are tremendous successes to, that we can point to there in terms of how we can operate at large scale, how we can mechanize a lot of work that formerly used to be done, um, you know, through arduous, you know, uh, human labor and so on. But I think what, what you're probably referring to is what is it that we have learned now that we could act upon immediately. And so there is very exciting research uh, in a field known as agroecology. There are leaders at the University of California at Berkeley, at Iowa State University, at Penn State University, um, around how we can farm in an agroecological mode. And what this means is that you can create agricultural systems that are modeled upon understanding the way in which nature works. And this is very helpful because at a very fundamental level, what agriculture actually is, is intercepting the flow of the resources that are required to produce food. And everyone, whether they're an agricultural you know, specialist or a farmer or not, knows what those are. We can all list them. We need sunshine. We need earth. We need water. We need minerals. So the art of agriculture is to intercept those flows where they occur naturally. And when we didn't manage that, we were gatherers. We were hunters. But the moment we began managing that, we became agriculturists. And so then we took charge of the flows of land and uh, water and minerals and energy to produce our food. But we did so in a way that we specialized to such a great extent that over vast swaths of land will produce only one thing. And that is a total artifact to the way in which we learn to practice this particular art. So we farm in rows and... You know, we have huge blocks of monocultures basically because of limitations that we had as we first learned to utilize draft animals or as we first learned to farm at large scale. But these days, there's actually no impediment to produce agricultural communities that look very much like natural ecological communities, which means that you have great diversity, you have polycultures, you have many different species growing together. And this optimizes and increases the efficiency of biological productivity. So there's a lot of research into this field of agriculture. It minimizes the requirement for external resources, for pest control, for nutrient flow. It conserves water. It builds up soil. And this is a way in which you can reduce the ecological footprint of agriculture and produce a more diverse, more healthful mix of food as a result. And so uh, this solves so many things simultaneously that it is clearly the future of agriculture, not to mention that it deals with productivity because you can get greater returns to land, to labor, to capital. It's literally as if you had three or four stories of an agricultural system on the same plot of land as opposed to monocultural systems that then you have to prop up because they are, for all intents and purposes, what you would design if you wanted to provide a nursery to what we call pests or to generate weeds. You would do exactly what you do in monoculture systems. 
So they're very intensive to try to manage. So rather than to create all those problems, polycultural systems prevent those problems to begin with, and they are more productive and produce a greater mix of foods. So there from the research side is that, but curiously, that's research basically in documenting how a lot of agriculture has been historically and uh, how some agriculture is still practiced around the world. The question is then, you know, how can you actually uh, uh, harness this agroecological knowledge and convert it into the default agricultural production mode, which would mean a major revolution in the way in which we do agriculture. But that, that's the state of the art at the moment. I wondered, just sort of a parenthetic question, which, you know, hopefully would apply. Going back to your biography, uh, you're, you know, for people just joining us, uh, talking with uh, Dr. Ricardo uh, Salvador with the Union of Concerned Scientists, and uh, his mother's uh, German-American, went down to uh, Mexico as a missionary and uh, married a Native American man, a Zapotec. And so Dr. Salvador's uh, family is American and a Zapotec. I'm wondering... I think this your biography sort of got you into this field, and as as you, and I'm sure you, I don't know if you go back, you know, to southern Mexico, visit your relatives down there, and, and see how they're how they're doing. Perhaps go out to California to see your your mother's uh, people, and in, in their very different form of agriculture. Um, I wonder what's what's the update? What's how are things going there, and and relating to some of the things we've been saying. Well, that, that's a very pointed question. I appreciate it. The, the answer is yes. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm in close contact with all of my family. And um, the, the reason why I think uh, this is a, a, a nice opening that, that you're providing here is that it does connect to my present work. You're, you're right. Uh, the moment that I became conscious of, of the answer to the question that I asked when I was very young, why is it that very smart people, very hardworking, very ambitious people on both sides of my family have such a different outcome uh, in terms of their economic well-being, and I determined that there was a structural issue uh, there. Uh, you know, I wanted to work in this field. I wanted to do something about it, and I initially believed mistakenly, I see in hindsight, that it was a, uh, an issue around access to technology um, and uh, knowledge. And in fact, I came to understand much later that it really had to do with issues around public policies. We create the systems in which we live, and that ultimately these reflect the power dynamics of society. So I'm actively engaged in those power dynamics and attempting to shift them in the direction of greater social justice, and it, it leads to the sorts of things that we've been discussing here. So then uh, the, the direct answer to your question is that um, the, the part of the family that I'm referring in California has been very successful in the dairy industry. The, the path I'm going to describe will sound very familiar to many families in, in agriculture, um, they initially started as a, as a dairy. Uh, various business managers realized that there would be greater profit for them uh, if instead of producing the milk, they got into transporting that milk. And so they shifted their entire operation. So they uh, you know, eventually had a, <clears throat> a, a transportation business that supplied milk uh, throughout the West. And there was an intermediate stage there where they realized that there was, uh, you know, a great business opportunity if they produced the hay to supply the dairy. And the, the lesson there is that they have been successful over time by not being static, but by being resilient and understanding the milieu in which they operated. That, that means not only the agricultural milieu, but the economic milieu and responding to the opportunities and sort of doing economic log rolling, you know, just being uh, always uh, very perceptive about the environment and opportunities around them and responding to them. And that has been, you know, one of the key ingredients to their success, in addition to the fact that they've worked hard, are very entrepreneurial. Um, on my father's side of the family, this story is quite different and has to do with public policies uh, on both sides of the border. And um, on the Mexican side of the border, there was a very deliberate decision um, during the industrialization of the country in the 40s to uh, drive rural populations, meaning namely native populations, into cities so that public investment would be more efficient at providing education and healthcare services in a concentrated area rather than a dispersed area throughout rural Mexico. Uh, and that contributed toward essentially destroying uh, rural livelihood. 
uh, and Native Americans in Mexico uh, at that time, and to some extent to the present, were heavily discriminated. They were at the bottom of the social pyramid. And uh, uh, simultaneously in the United States, the Second World War developed, as everyone knows, that created a uh, deficit of uh, agricultural labor. Uh, that created a demand for labor. Mexico and the U.S. agreed on a program to supply labor to U.S. farmers. Uh, many Native American communities came to the United States lock, stock, and barrel at that time, including my family. Um, and so the result has been that, it, it, in essence, the culture, literally the community, the actual town where my father's family comes from, which had been there for 800 years that we know of, has disappeared. It's essentially a ghost community. And it has been transplanted lock, stock, and barrel to East L.A. Uh, from where they go and work, not so much in the agricultural fields anymore, because by now we're talking second and third generation. And so, you know, there is a distribution of what they do. Those that still do service labor, you know, doing lawns and uh, and cleaning mansions and and Hollywood, those sorts of things, uh, you know, are still in the family. But also the second and third generations have become teachers, uh, doctors. There's engineers there. So that that has been the outcome after a few generations on both sides of the family. Yeah, it's it's just so interesting the the you know direct direct contact with both sides there, and and I guess in in a certain sense becomes kind of a microcosm, a, a you know test case for for public policy. You you Correct. see you see the effects directly directly in your family. Uh, we're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll be talking more, of course, with uh, Dr. Ricardo Salvador. He's the senior scientist and director of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. He says preventable diseases like hypertension and diabetes result from a default food system that exists only because it's successful as a business proposition for some large agribusiness firms. And by changing this, we can improve public health. We've been talking about that, of course. He uh, sees this as a problem of um, economic social justice as well. We need to uh, flow not only food out to the, the hungry poor, but uh, economic benefits as well. Um, and uh, when we come back from a break, we're going to ask him uh, another loaded question, this one about genetic engineering. It's a very hot topic. It gets us into uh, sort of the David versus Goliath, the uh, old uh, industrial agriculture model uh, to, to the T, um, I guess, to the nth degree versus the uh, sustainable agricultural uh, and organic uh, agricultural side. More on that following break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Stokes Nature Center's 16th annual fall fundraiser, Van Gogh Going Gone, with seated banquet, beverages, silent, and live auctions. Saturday, November 2nd at 6 p.m. at the Copper Mill in Logan. Information at loganature.org. What do we mean when we call someone successful? I run, jump, walk, season of the audience 26 and a half miles on average on that day alone. So I do ultra marathons in a weekend physically. Everybody has days where they come to the end of the day. I come to the end of the day bone tired and victorious. I'm Guy Raz. Success says a misnomer. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Today at 10, following Access Utah. We're back with Dr. Ricardo Salvador. He is a senior scientist and director of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And he was in Logan, Utah recently to give a talk for the uh, Plant Soils and Climate Department at Utah State University. The title of the talk, Democracy Interrupted, Constructing a Food Utopia on the Top of Crumbling Foundations. And the talk also sponsored by Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education uh, I want to address the the topic, uh, the hot topic these days: genetically modified organisms, GMOs, genetic engineering. And before the break, uh, Dr. Salvador, I sort of set this up as as um, sort of to the nth degree some of the uh, conflicts that we have been talking about: genetically modified organisms, Monsanto. If you say the word Monsanto, uh, that'll tell you where a person's coming from, their reaction. Um, sort of uh, the epitome of industrial agriculture and there are conflicts increasing conflicts it's going to court uh, congress is acting um you know when seeds come over to uh to a little uh, organic or sustainable operation they they fear that they might be open to to being sued by monsanto where does union of concerned science stand on this 
Well, as you've said, it is uh, you know a hot topic at the moment. I, uh, I'll give you a direct answer, and then I'd like to provide a little bit of, of context. Uh, at the Union of Concerned Scientists, uh, you know, as our name implies, uh, we are scientists. We support the development of science, and, and particularly in the public interest. Um, when it comes to any technology, what you have is the application of science. So when it comes to biotech as the application of science, we are strong critics of the current application of molecular biology, which is the parent science behind biotech and, and the particular examples that you've described. Um, but now let me give you some uh, context. Uh, as scientists, we believe that this is, in fact, the century or the era of molecular biology. As a public, uh, we have a great uh, interest, a great stake in seeing that we support and learn as much as we can about molecular biology. There is a great potential for benefit to all of humanity the more we understand the way in which our genetic systems operate and the extent to which it's possible for us to manipulate genetic systems across all organisms. So as scientists, we're big fans of the science. The same thing can occur in molecular biology as happens in a field such as nuclear physics, where you can be you know, the most competent nuclear physicist, the most knowledgeable nuclear physicist in the world, and yet be a critic of the application of nuclear physics, such as in the case of generating energy from um, uh, nuclear reactions, uh, as in the most famous case, say, of Albert Einstein, you know, who was the most knowledgeable at his time in the, in the field of physics and was opposed to one application of that science, uh, which was the utilization of thermonuclear energy for war. Um, and this was in his latter years. So uh, that's kind of the analog that we have here. And I want to make sure that I provide that context so that we don't treat a very complex subject in uh, a childish way, which I'm afraid is how this debate often plays out. So uh, now coming to the current application of biotechnology, we have, we have very simplistic applications of this technology uh, at the moment. And the reason why we are such critics is that you have to ask yourself the question, what does any technology support? Well, in this case, as you have described, these technologies are supporting large-scale industrialized monocrop agriculture. Um, and uh, as should be clear to anyone that has been listening to our conversation here for the last few moments, we see that there are a lot of problems with monocrop uh, agriculture and any technology then that would support that sort of system or contribute to that sort of system is a, is a technology that we would look askance uh, at. Uh, but in the particular case of biotech agriculture, uh, you know, Roundup-ready crops, those sorts of things that are available right now, which are just the vanguard, you know, they're the beginning of what could possibly be in the future, what you have really is not so much the science which is in contention, it's the business model behind that. And the business model at the moment locks farmers into a particular system with very little choice. It de-skills them. You know, it doesn't value their knowledge. Really, the knowledge is, you know, the knowledge back in the labs that creates this whole system that you must buy into or else exclude yourself from, you know, where the majority of investment in agricultural systems and technology is going at the moment. So it removes choices in terms of seeds that you can utilize, in terms of cropping systems that you can utilize, in terms of entire markets that you might be able to participate in. That monopolistic approach is the thing that ultimately we're critical of, even though the vehicle through which that is expressed at the moment is, you know, these business models predicated on very simplistic uh, applications of biotech. So um, I want to be very clear uh, that listeners understand that at the Union of Concerned Scientists, we are highly critical of the current applications of biotech as the technology, but not of molecular science, the parent uh, field of science, and that, in fact, we see lots of potential there in the future. Finally, um, you have a page here on the Union of Concerned Scientists, uh, by the way, uh, ucsusa.org, the website. Uh, what you can do, help make healthy food and farms a reality. What would you suggest some actions people are interested in uh, making some change? What, what can they do? Well, because of the fact that, that we believe that the major levers are structural, they're policy, you know, decisions about how to use public resources, 
uh, you know, uh, policy is basically the authority to direct um, uh, resources in a particular direction. So we believe the best thing that the public can do is to demand that their government essentially cease to participate and create the economic boondoggle that we have at the moment, which is to invest in a system that produces too much of the wrong stuff, not enough of the right stuff. That, as we said at the top of this conversation, the United States Department of Agriculture and all of government in concert across all of the agencies invest in creating the type of system that by default creates healthful food. Um, and so uh, Congress people, the people who sit on agricultural committees who make the decisions about what we're going to invest in, should we do more research in biotech, should we do more research in advancing agroecology, should we do more research in advancing classical breeding, you know, where are we going to make our big bets, our investments for the future? That's where the dialogue is at the moment. That's where these decisions are made. And at the moment, unfortunately, um, you know, you have a, a, a reality where that system is captured. That system is captured by large agribusiness interests, and these decisions that I've just listed will often happen in rooms in the Senate or, you know, uh, uh, congressional office buildings where there are sometimes no more than three or four or five people that have the ear of decision makers and are able to leverage the interest of the entire U.S. public, uh, you know, with a single vote on a committee. Uh, there's a truism here in D.C. that our legislators in the you know, current political reality uh, listen only to two audiences, either the money or the many. And uh, we at UCS and the issues that we've spoken about right now will never represent the money. So we have to find a way that we represent the money. And the many includes, you know, hopefully, the listeners in shows like this who are engaged citizens who want to take an active part uh, in creating the world that they want to live in and that they want to see their children living, and hopefully in ways uh, that will fulfill what the vision of this country was, where you know citizens have an active voice in shaping their government's decisions and that those decisions should serve the public interest and not the interest of a narrow sector of society. So um, because the country was created, in essence, to eliminate uh, you know, the privileged few and make it possible for everyone to enjoy, you know, high standards of living, then we think that this is a very American thing to do. And so, uh, you know, our appeal at UCS would be for citizens to become engaged, uh, to uh, contact and pressure and demand and expect that their political representatives and decision makers, particularly in this case, on these issues, on the agricultural committees in the House and the Senate, make the right decisions in terms of the public interest. And that means support diversified agriculture, support the production of healthful foods. Dr. Ricardo Salvador is the senior scientist and director of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And uh, he was in Utah recently in Logan at Utah State University to give a talk uh, for the Plant, Soils, and Climate Department at Utah State University, also sponsored by Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education. The talk titled Democracy Interrupted, Constructing a Food Utopia on Top of Crumbling Foundations. Uh, Dr. Salvador, uh, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. This is Utah Public Radio. KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD1 91.5 Logan.